world peace has been the cry of the masses in light of the destruction wreaked during the world wars. When will the nations finally be at peace is the question. The purpose of the United Nations was to form a governing body of sorts made up of multiple nations in order to provide a platform for positive engagement among the nations, to help to encourage peace between the nations. The tagline from the UN website reads as follows, and I quote, peace, dignity, and equality on a healthy planet. And yet the nature of the United Nations, a supposed union of nations, a union of nations whose political and moral standards vastly differ from one another, the very nature of it is its own downfall. Just recently, a couple of members of the United Nations called for a debate at the UN Human Rights Council based on an assessment which concluded that China may have committed crimes against a specific people group, a Muslim people group in the Xinjiang region of China. However, the call for the debate failed. Now, this was just a call for a debate about it. And the call for the debate itself failed, though it is clear from the assessment that crimes against humanity have definitely occurred. The debate failed to garner the number of votes necessary to just discuss the issue. Predictably, it was other communist nations who failed to vote in favor of the debate. But surprisingly, there were also a number of other Muslim nations that failed to vote in favor of the debate. And the reason for this is simply their unwillingness to offend China. They've got a lot of skin in the game with China. Dr. Al Mohler commented on this issue and said, and I quote, the United Nations from the beginning has been broken. The United Nations is incompetent as an international organization precisely because it has both bad actors and good actors in the same body. And the bad actors, for example, Russia and China under communist domination, domination both have a veto power before the United Nations Security Council, and they effectively have malign influence in so many other nations. So if one of these nations commits a crime or does something like, I don't know, invades a neighboring nation to try to take their land, but they have veto power on the United Nations, how in the world is the United Nations going to stand up and do anything about it? In other words, a body of United Nations will never work so long as sin continues to have rule in the hearts of mankind. So again, how can the nations ever be at peace? The answer is in the church. As we learned last week, the church is the workmanship of God, is a place where his power is presently working in the world. In the church, God removes the boundaries of separation. He removes the boundaries of sin, of prejudice, of racism, because he gives new life to the individual who is a part of the church. And through that new life that he gives to each one individually, he establishes a new kind of man, a new body of people, a new structure, a building with Christ as its cornerstone, the apostles and prophets, as its foundation. That is who we are as the church of Jesus Christ. We are one new man, one new entity, a new kind of building which is a dwelling place of God 
for his glory. In other words, when Paul says that we are his workmanship in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, it's not merely a product of his work in our individual lives. The workmanship of God is really also a product of his work, the work that he does with each of us together in the body of Christ. As we've already established, sin divides, and it's created a great divide between humanity and God, and it creates a great divide between us and one another. The phrase, but God, in the early part of chapter 2 of Ephesians was the point of contact between what we called the black velvet backdrop of our sin and the gloriously shining diamond of the immeasurable grace of God. In our text for this morning, another such phrase will play a similar role. You'll say, but now. In this section, we are looking at the effects of sin, not on the individual, but the t- to the society to nations, between one group of people and another. Before, as he goes through the passage, we were separate. There was animosity, but now in Christ, we have peace. That's what Paul's going to say. Now, he doesn't aim here to solve the issue of racial, ethnic, or national injustice, and neither will we this morning. The thrust of the section of Scripture is intended to address the issue by more pointing to the solution that God has provided than pointing to the problem. Well, if you haven't turned there already, go ahead and turn in Ephesians chapter 2, and we'll look at verses 11 through 22. I'll read those for you this morning, um, and then we'll pray and we'll get into the passage for our consideration. Ephesians chapter 2, starting at verse 11. Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision, by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility hostility, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. And he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and preached peace to those who are near, For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Let us pray once again. Father, thank you again for today. Thank you for the time that we have together. Thank you for your word, which is true and which sanctifies us. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts collectively be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, a simple outline for this section In this text, we'll see the problem in verses 11 through 12. We'll see the peace in verses 13 through 18, and then the product 
in verses 19 through 20. Again, how is the power of God at work to bring church peace to his church? We see the problem, the peace, and the product. Let's talk about the problem in verses 11 through 12. I won't read those again. But as we think about the salvation history of God's people, really there have always been, I guess, since Genesis chapter 12, two groups of people. As we went through the first chapters of Genesis, all of humanity was essentially one people. We get to chapter 11 and then a division occurred as a result of God's judgment against them. And then we get to chapter 12 and God institutes his plan of redemption for all of humankind, even though at that point, by that point, all of the people of humanity were spread abroad the earth. They were spread throughout the earth. They had different languages, were starting to develop different customs. Even though that was true, God still desired to bring about the redemption of mankind. Ever since Genesis chapter 3, we've been looking forward to that. And we've talked about this in other, in other sermons, so I won't go into great detail. But God's desire to redeem mankind and his putting forth his plan in motion started with one people group. And so when we get to Genesis chapter 12, and really when we read all of the rest of the Old Testament, we see his focus on one people group. And sometimes people might ask the question, why is Israel so important? Well, Israel is so important, really, because of Genesis chapter 12. Because God desired, decided in Genesis chapter 12, in order to reach all of humanity, he would set apart one group, one people group, one ethnic group, one family in order to reach all of humanity. And that family happened to be Abraham and his family. And so God set apart Abraham and his descendants, and he said to him, Go forth from your country, from your relatives, from your father's house. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. That's been God's design. That's been his desire from the very beginning. He's desired to redeem all of mankind, and in order to do that, to redeem all of the various families of mankind, all of the ethnic groups on the earth, he set forth this plan to set apart one family group in order to bring blessing to all. His plan was to set apart this people, and as they grew and developed, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who became Israel, and Israel had his 12 tribes, he designed a plan to set apart these 12 tribes as a kingdom of priests. A whole nation of people set apart to know him, to love him, and to worship him so that all of the rest of the nations of the earth could be blessed in and through them. And so we see this distinction being made. It was a distinction, a distinction being made not for the purpose of animosity, but for the purpose of God's glory so that he might redeem humanity. The problem came in. <laughs> with the very simple fact that this nation that he set apart were sinners just like the rest of us. And so they struggled in their own hearts with their calling. And they struggled with doing the will of God. And they sinned and they fell away. They were to be set apart by God for this purpose and they were to be holy. But they fell. 
and they grew proud and they grew arrogant. And so there was this distinction made between those who were Jews or those who were of Israel and everyone else. And everyone else, the term for everyone else, was the term Gentile. So when we talk about Jews and Gentiles, it's really what we're talking about. We're talking about this ethnic group of people who God originally set apart so that through them, all the families of the earth would be blessed. And ultimately, this happened in the Messiah, in Jesus, who came as a as a descendant of Abraham. But we have this group of Jews and then we have this group of Gentiles, which is basically every other people group. So when the church was first born on the day of Pentecost, it was a Jewish church. When it became clear that God was allowing Gentiles to come to faith in a Jewish Messiah, there was a great deal of controversy abounding in the church because they didn't really understand what this whole process. They didn't really get what God was doing. Paul refers to this as a mystery. We touched on that a little bit earlier as we're going through chapter 1, and we'll get back to it in chapter 3. The mystery is that Jews and Gentiles would be included in one body, in one group, as God set them apart through faith in Christ. There was a lot of confusion there was a lot of chaos that happened initially, but eventually they started to come together. Well, this difficulty between these two groups of people is what Paul is addressing here in the second chapter of Ephesians. It seems that the greater difficulty came on the part of the Gentiles, perhaps, likely because they were in the majority in, in Ephesus. They were perhaps tempted to look down on the minority Jews. Some of the old habits of the animosity between the two groups were hard to get away with. Thus, in verse 11, Paul calls them as Gentiles to remember a few things. Every once in a while, we need that perspective, right? We need to remember where we came from. Paul says, remember what it was like when you were estranged from God. He says, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who were called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision performed in the flesh by human hands. He calls them Gentiles in the flesh because they're physically, again, non-Jewish, non-Israelite descent. They were not a part of that original family that God intended to be set apart for the blessing of all families. They were Gentiles in the flesh. They were called the uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision. Circumcision was intended to be a symbol of the covenant that God had made with Abraham, again, as the first family, that family that he was setting apart. Every covenant has a symbol, the symbol of this covenant that was passed down from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob, who is Israel, and through his 12 sons, was to have every male child on the eighth day of his life circumcised. Thus, anyone who was Jewish would have referred to themselves as the circumcision, as those who were of the promise, and everyone else was the uncircumcision. This became a part of the debate in Acts when the Gentiles started to have faith in Christ, whether or not they should be circumcised and keep the law of Moses. Nevertheless, as Paul points out, this term uncircumcision was a reference given by the Jews to any Gentile person, and really for the sake of discriminating, making a distinction. There's nothing inherently sinful about stating the fact that someone is either circumcised or uncircumcised, but for the Jews, it was a means of expressing their disdain for those who are outside of the covenant. One author says it this way, as far as the Jews were concerned, they were outcasts, Gentiles. 
referred to as the uncircumcision. It was a term of derision, defamation, and reproach. David called Goliath an uncircumcised Philistine because Gentiles did not have the physical mark of circumcision to set them apart as the people of God. Many Jews had come to consider them to be inferior and, in fact, of no concern to God, end quote. A common, more contemporary term in our day would be the term race. The term race with respect to people groups was contrived in order to create distinctions between people on the basis of certain physical characteristics they shared. For example, to be blonde-haired, blue-eyed, and light-skinned would have been one race of people. To have black hair, brown eyes, and dark skin would have been another race of people even though even science has shown that there's really no true biological basis for the term race. Many of the things that are characteristic of different races are shared between races and are a product of minor environmental adaptations, such as darker pigment for skin, for example, for those who live in climates closer to the equator. Now, there's nothing necessarily inherently wrong with classifying someone as one race or another on the basis of shared characteristics. What is the problem is when the classification of race becomes a means for discrimination. And by discrimination, I mean placing value on a person on the basis of those physical characteristics. That has historically been the problem in our nation. Back to the text in Ephesians, previously for the Jew, the characteristic of circumcision versus uncircumcision became a means of treating that person well or treating them poorly. Paul points this out not to shame his Gentile readers. He even mocks the classification by calling the Jews the, quote, so-called circumcision. And the reason why he's mocking this is because in Deuteronomy 30, Moses says that true circumcision is of the heart and not outwardly. Paul's point in bringing this up is to highlight the fact that there was a great deal of animosity between them and the chosen people of God. And being estranged from the people of God meant being estranged from access to God. And that's really what he's getting at. Listen to verse 12. Remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of God and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Being estranged from the people of God meant being estranged from access to God. And that was dangerous. R.C. Sproul says this, Do you not realize that the most formidable opponent that you will ever have in your life, your most hostile enemy and most threatening alien to your well-being is Almighty God? Now, verse 12 is meant to serve as a comparison. If you think that being estranged from another people group is bad, if you think that animosity between you and another ethnic group or race is bad, think of how awful it is to be estranged from God. The language of estrangement, the language of those who are far off is intended to suggest that it is a form of judgment. We were separate from Christ, he says. I think he's using Christ here generically in the sense of Messiah, since the Messiah was to come through Israel. They were excluded from the commonwealth, he says, from the nation itself. They didn't have the law. They didn't have the temple or the priesthood. They didn't have the sacrifices. They were excluded as Gentiles. They were strangers to the covenants of promise, meaning they didn't have the promises. The promises were not made to them. They were made with them in view, certainly, but none of them would have known that. Finally, he summarizes, they were having no hope and without God in the world. Paul has a way with words, doesn't he? 
in the first half of Ephesians in order to paint the bleakest picture possible of those outside of Christ. He called them children of wrath and sons of disobedience. Here he says that those who are estranged from Christ, those who are estranged from God, are without hope and without God in this world. Those who are apart from Christ may claim to have hope and hope itself, or hope in themselves, or hope in another person, but those who are separate from Christ, really any person living among the peoples of this world who are without Christ, are truly without any hope. Hope is a distinctly Christian virtue. Peter says that we have been given new birth into a living hope only through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Our hope, biblical hope, is a living hope because Jesus lives, because he was raised from the dead. And so we're not just hoping on wishful thinking. We're hoping on promises that God has made and promises that he has begun to fulfill and he started to fulfill them in his son Jesus when he raised him from the dead. He says they are without God in this world. It doesn't matter who men claim to worship or what prophet they claim to have if they don't have Jesus Christ and the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ and they are without God in this world. Paul says this is the problem. The problem is not that the Jews didn't like you or that they said bad things about you or that they treated you differently because you didn't have the same characteristics as they did. The problem is that you were estranged from God. You were separate from him. You were without God in this world. Of all the things that should trouble you, of all the things that should keep you up at night, of all the things that should give you nightmare, the thing that should worry you the most is being estranged from the living God. This is the greatest problem facing humanity today, not merely a lack of peace between nations, but a lack of peace between them and their creator, God. Now, if the previous section, verses 1 through 10, could be summarized by the term grace, this next section, verses 13 through 18, which is also the next point in our outline, can be summarized by the term peace. Verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who are formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by having put to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who are far away and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access in in one spirit to the Father. Peace has been defined as, quote, "total total well-being, prosperity, and security associated with God's presence among his people, end quote. When you hear the term peace, think wholeness, think completeness, think fullness, We talk about making someone whole when they lose out on something. This section is all about God making his people whole, bringing peace in Jesus Christ. Verse 13 is a summary statement about the peace that is now afforded to us in Christ. And verses 14 through 18 support that. But now, here again, we have that familiar phrase serving as a turning point in the text. Again, in verse 4, it was but God. Here, it is but now. You were estranged, but now there is peace. You who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. That's really the whole of our salvation. 
Prior to coming to Christ, we were far off. We were separate from him. Our sin creates a separation between us and God. But in Christ, we are brought near. Specifically, by the blood of Christ, we're brought near. In the context of the Jew and Gentile discussion, to be a Gentile was to be as far away from God as one could possibly be. But now in Christ, things are different. Again, in the context of Jew-Gentile discussion, this is the great equalizer. The blood of Christ is what makes everything right. The blood of Christ is what makes everyone right. His blood, his sacrifice, his death on the cross for our sins is what changes our status from being far away from him, far away from his grace, far away from his mercy to being brought near. We have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Paul says, for he himself is our peace. Jesus himself and no one else. Peter says it this way in Acts. There is no other name given under heaven among men by which we must be saved. Paul says it this way in 1 Timothy, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Jesus himself said this about himself, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Do you get it? Christianity is an absolutely exclusive religion that claims exclusively that there is salvation in no one but Jesus alone. Anyone who tells you different is lying to you. It's all about faith in him, trusting in his sacrifice, the shedding of his precious blood, as Peter calls it, as payment for our sins. His physical death on the cross, his physical resurrection from the dead alone guarantees that our sins are forgiven. Total well-being, prosperity, and security, shalom, peace, is only found in Jesus Christ. He himself is our peace. He says that really he's our peace in two ways. First, he's our peace in that he reconciles the two men into one. Second, he's our peace in that he reconciles us together as one to God. Look at verses 14 and 15 again. For he himself is our peace who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace. Paul says he made both groups into one. In himself, he made the two into one new man. These two previously incompatible groups of people, Jews and Gentiles, these two who spat hatred and animosity towards one another, who had pet derogatory names for one another, God has made into one new man in Christ. Paul says this is one new man. This is not an old man renovated or an old man upgraded. This is this, these two groups, Jews and Gentiles, are one new man now. Again, this was the mystery that was previously hidden in times past. The mystery is that there would be one new creation in the church. These are not Jews renovated, right? These are not newly updated Jews. These are not newly updated Gentiles. This is one new group in the church. One author said it this way. They have been brought into a mutual relationship and a unity which surpasses what they once were. In accomplishing this, Christ has transcended one of the fundamental divisions of the first century world. If Jews spoke of humanity being divided into Jews and Gentiles, then Paul makes a threefold division. Jews, Gentiles, and the church of God. Later, Christians were to speak of themselves as a third race or a new race, neither Jewish 
nor Gentile. Galatians chapter 3, Paul says, For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. We are the church. If you name the name of Jesus Christ, that means you are my brother, you are my sister, you are my father, you are my mother. It doesn't matter where you are from or what you look like, what you eat or drink or smell like. If Jesus is your Lord, then we are family. That's the way it works. I'll tell you, one of the most discouraging times in my life was when my wife and I were planning to marry. That's because being a so-called interracial couple, both of us face pressure from people in our lives that I think neither of us would have expected. Pressure to reconsider, pressure to wait a little while, pressure to think of all the problems that you'll face. Now, some of the comments and questions were intended to be practical, and yet others were out of fear, and I believe out of a worldview that wasn't completely thought through in terms of its implication for a biblical marriage. I've personally faced my share of racism before, and we knew that our marriage would, at least in some circles, make us more of a target, and yet none of that really mattered because we believed the Scripture. We believe that Christ is our peace and that that's all that matters. Today, Sunday morning still remains one of the most segregated hours in our country. And it's not because most churches exist in regions where there's only one ethnicity. Many places, particularly near urban settings, have a wide range of ethnicities living close together. And yet there are still white churches, still black churches, Hispanic churches, Chinese churches, Korean churches. Why? Why is that? I mean, it's easier. I get that. But why do we settle for what's easier when it doesn't reflect the true nature of the church? I would say that I'm grateful that we don't have that problem here at Catonsville Baptist Church. Well, back in our text, Paul continues and says that Christ has made the two into one new man by breaking down the barrier of the dividing wall, by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, In the temple, there was literally a dividing wall between the court of the Gentiles and the courts to which Jews were given access. The Gentiles were, of course, the furthest away from the holy place, which is where the presence of God resided. In Christ, Paul says, though this was commanded by law, though there were distinctions made by law separating the two groups of people, though there were regulations and ceremonies instituted to separate one people from another, in Christ, those distinctions have been abolished. They have been broken down because Christ has fulfilled the law for all who have faith in him. Thus, any barrier between Jews and Gentiles who believe in Christ has been removed. What once occupied that space separating them is no longer. Here's our peace, again, in that he reconciles the two into one new man. He's also a peace in that he reconciles this one new man together to God, verse 16, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by having put to death the enmity. Not only has Christ abolished, broken down the barrier between men, but also in him, in the church, Christ has abolished the barrier between them and God. Both Jews and Gentiles as one are reconciled to God through the cross. The cross of Christ, again, his shed blood on the cross, his sacrifice for sin is the great equalizer. There's no more room for boasting on account of the cross. 
Peter says this in 1 Peter 2, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness for by his wounds you were healed for you were continually straying like sheep but now have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. We already read from Ephesians chapter 2, for by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. The enmity that we once faced, the dread we once faced of the fury of the wrath of God is now satisfied because of the cross. And it doesn't matter if you are Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female, or black or white. The cross of Jesus Christ has satisfied the wrath of God for everyone who believes. He himself is our peace. Again, moving on, the text says that this is clear and that the message of the gospel has gone forth really to all people. The message of peace was preached to all. Verses 17 and 18, verse 17, and he came and preached peace to you who are far away and peace to those who are near. The coming of Christ to die for the sins of the world meant the possibility of peace for all men. Luke chapter 2, verse 14. Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among men with whom he is pleased. When Jesus was brought into the temple shortly after his birth, birth, Simeon blessed the Lord, saying this, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation that you've prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. While he was on earth, Jesus preached even to some who were not Jewish, though this was not his primary ministry. We saw that in his dealings with the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4. We saw that in his dealings with the centurion of Matthew 8, of whom he says, Truly, I tell you, with no one in Israel I have found such faith. And also with the Canaanite woman in Matthew 15, among others. Ultimately, Jesus commissioned the apostles to go forth and to preach the gospel to all people upon his ascension. Matthew 28, we've said that multiple times already. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and I am with you always. When he says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, he's not talking about a geographical group. He's not talking about a a political state. He's talking about people groups. That's what the term ethne means. We translate it nations, but really it's talking, it's referring to people groups. As a result of Jesus' ministry, the salvation accomplished through his life, death, and resurrection and his commissioning of his people before his ascension, the message of peace has gone forth to all. And as a result, all who believe have been given access to his God and Father through the Holy Spirit. Verse 18, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. We've talked frequently throughout the study about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Here we're told that in addition to the ministry of sealing and regeneration, the Holy Spirit also by virtue of his role in our salvation, he assures our access to God. Paul will say in Ephesians chapter 4, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father who is over all and through all and in all. There is one body of believers connected with one spirit. The writer of Hebrews said, Let us therefore come boldly before the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. 
It would have been unheard of for someone to speak of coming boldly into the presence of God. And yet in Christ, on account of his sacrifice, that's the point that the writer of Hebrews makes in Hebrews chapter 4. On account of his sacrifice, we, anyone who's put their faith in Christ, can come boldly before the throne of grace. We have access in him and in him alone. Again, racism is not the real problem. People talk about racism as if it is a person who needs to be thwarted. The act of attributing a negative value to someone on the basis of a set of physical characteristics is a problem in the heart of mankind due to sin. The sin issue is only resolved in Christ. He is the only one who can take away sin and free us from the power of sin, sin which seeks to divide. In Christ, in the church, we are given peace. We are made to be at peace by the work of God in us. In the church, people from every tribe and tongue and nation are reconciled together and are reconciled together to God. Jesus Christ is the peace of every genuine believer in Christ. There ought not to exist a hint of animosity, fear, or anger between those in the church because Christ is our peace. There's no room for considering another who has been rescued from sin and given life in Jesus. There's no room for considering another who has been saved by the grace of God as less valuable, less important, less significant, as his grace has been lavished on each of us to the same degree. Love ought to characterize us because we've all been forgiven much. Well, we saw the problem, we saw the peace, now we have the product. Very quickly, verses 19 through 22. So you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. They say when the slaves were emancipated, the hardest thing for them was to stop thinking of themselves as slaves. They had been so used to thinking of themselves as slaves that some of them, even after they were emancipated, ended up going back to their slave owners because they couldn't think of anything else to do. Paul says that shouldn't be true of us in the church. We need to stop thinking about thinking like we thought before we came to Christ, and we need to start thinking about ourselves in a different way. He says, you remember what you used to be, now think about who you are. Who are we now in Christ? Who are those who have been reconciled to God in Christ? Those for whom Christ is our peace, who are we now? Well, first, we're family. He says, again, you were far off, now you've been brought near. You were strangers and aliens, but now you are fellow citizens with the saints, and you are of God's household. We were estranged from God, but now we belong to him. We were foreigners and aliens in a foreign land, but now we are his children, co-heirs with Christ. We're fellow citizens. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, Paul says, Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we eagerly wait for a Savior. Our citizenship is in heaven. You hear people talk about us having dual citizenship. That's true in one sense, but in another sense, we don't have dual citizenship. Our only citizenship, the only one that really matters is being a citizen of heaven. Your earthly citizenship is going to pass away. Your heavenly citizenship is eternal. We are of God's household. Again, in Galatians, Paul says that we are all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. We are 
a part of his people. When we looked at chapter one, we talked about God being our heavenly father. Now, significant it is that we can call him that, but it's all because we have faith in Christ. We're not only family, but we're also described as a building. We once had a dividing wall between us, but now we are a building being built together. Being built, he says, on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. These were the ones who carried the message of the gospel in establishing the church. Christ himself is the cornerstone. He is the core of their message, in other words. One author said this, the cornerstone of the foundation is Christ Jesus himself. The cornerstone was a major structural part of ancient buildings. It had to be strong enough to support what was built on it, and it had to be precisely laid because every other part of the structure was oriented to it. The cornerstone was the support, the orienter, and the unifier of the entire building. That is what Jesus Christ is to God's kingdom, God's family, God's building. Jesus Christ is at the core of Christian doctrine, from his lordship to his work of redemption, from the peace that he brings between us and God to the peace that he brings between us and one another. The Christian faith is all about faith in Christ and him alone. As the body collectively abides in him, so she grows. That's verses 21 and 22. In whom the whole body being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord. In whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the spirit. The church is not the physical building. And yet in Christ, the church is pictured as a building. And each member is being brought into fellowship with Christ, thus with one another. They are being fitted together as pieces of a building. Paul will pick up on this concept of being fitted together later in Ephesians chapter 4 when he talks about spiritual gifts. But these members are being brought together, Jews and Gentiles, it doesn't matter. They're being brought together, they're being placed in the body of Christ together. They're being fitted together so that the whole body will be made into a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Again, this is why we covenant together in the local church. We read our covenant earlier this morning as an example of this. We covenant together in the local church to express this truth that applies to all believers. We are all one in Christ, and as one in Christ, our duty is to glorify him as our cornerstone and our head. As one local assembly of believers, we covenant together because through the Spirit, we have access to God together. We are gifted to build up one another. Together, we glorify God as his workmanship. Together, we're being built up as a dwelling place for God in the spirit and we reflect that through our local covenant with one another and the reality is that this is true no matter where we go and what fellowship we have with other believers I've experienced a great deal of fellowship and encouragement from brothers and sisters whom I've met in completely different countries people that I've gone on missions trips with, people that I'd never met before. We got together and we clicked immediately. People I probably would never meet aside from going on a missions trip. These, these ran, I went on some pretty random missions trips uh, many years ago um, and with people that I'd never met before, but we got together and we clicked because we were all there for one purpose and we all had the same spirit in us and that's all we needed. And God was glorified in that. To the Samaritan at the well, Jesus said that while salvation is of the Jews, the time is coming and now is when the Father will seek some to worship him in spirit and in truth. God does that through the Spirit of God. 
I like this quote here. Through the blood, the suffering flesh, the cross, and the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, aliens become citizens, strangers become family, idolaters become the temple of the true God, the hopeless inherit the promises of God, those without Christ become one in Christ, those who are far off are brought near, and the godless are reconciled to God. Therein is the reconciliation of men to God and of men to men. We are together being brought, built into a dwelling place of God in the spirit that brings us full circle back to one of our original points in starting this letter. Why does the church exist? The church exists for the glory of God. And one of the primary ways that the church displays the glory of God one of the primary ways that she shows herself to be a workmanship of God is as God brings together people from every tribe and tongue and nation, puts them together in a body, creates one new man through them, and glorifies himself as he shows off his love and his peace among them. The world has a question of race because it doesn't have Christ. Yet for the church, that is not so. In the church, God is at work. He is at work bringing glory to himself by reconciling all men together to himself in Christ. The answer to racism, the answer to racial inequality is the church. The answer to the issues and the infighting that's going on among the nations is the church because this is where God is at work today. God is at work building his church, a church in which there is no distinction between Jew and Gentile, black or white, Russian or American or Ukrainian. We are all one new man, one new creation, one new workmanship of God so that he might be glorified through his spirit dwelling in us. I like this passage in Revelation as we think about what we're looking forward to as God has set apart his people, as God has, is building his church. This is what we are looking forward to. Just listen. Revelation chapter 5. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne of the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. We have that day to look forward to. Father, we thank you that we have that day to look forward to. We thank you that today we can enjoy just a little bit of that as we sit with one another, as we worship together with one another. People from various tribes and tongues and families and nations all gathered together in your church. This is what you are doing. This is how you are at work in the world today. No one can accuse you of inactivity because you are building your church. 
a church in which there is peace. We're grateful for that. And we do look forward to the day when we can stand around your throne with people from every tribe and tongue and nation whom you've redeemed through the blood of your son, Jesus. And we can sing, worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. Even so, come Lord Jesus. Amen.